The secrets were actually hidden in plain sight for centuries, but only recently have archaeologists been able to pinpoint the actual site of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, what did they conclude? Coming up, we'll explore the most important piece of real estate on the planet. And then we've got a bunch of puzzling Bible questions we'll tackle. Plus, we'll bring you all the latest headlines from the Middle East. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined by our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who joins us today at the Dead Sea in Israel, getting ready to head to Jerusalem. So, Charlie, you are finally back in Israel. How long has it been since your last trip, and what are your initial impressions since you arrived? You know, John, it was over a year ago that I was sitting ready to head to Israel when the trip I was going on was canceled. It's been almost 18, 19 months since I've been in Israel, so it's great being back It was not without complication getting here, including having a flight to New York delayed and then canceled, which blocked us for going. So we were a day late getting here, you know, the old day late and a dollar short. Well, uh, we are a dollar short having paid for all that extra stuff for the day, but we're here. That's what matters. And uh, things are going well. Well, as you get ready to head to Jerusalem for the final week of your tour, It sounds like you might need to be careful walking up to the Temple Mount. A a recent report said that the bridge leading up to the site is in immediate danger of collapse. Now, how serious is the problem, and what would it take to get the thing fixed? You know, it really is a serious problem, but uh, let me explain some of the background for those who've not been to Jerusalem. Uh, There are multiple gateways that open up onto the Temple Mount, but only one of those gates is open to non-Muslims. Uh, It's at the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, right next to the Western Wall Plaza. Uh, That's where Jews, Christians, and other non-Muslims can walk up onto the site. Up until 2004, visitors walked up an earthen ramp that led to the gate, but a minor earthquake, along with heavy rains and snow, caused part of the ramp to collapse into the women's section of the Western Wall. Hmm. A temporary wooden trestle on top of metal scaffolding was hastily constructed to provide temporary access while a more permanent structure was designed. Unfortunately, politics came into play. The Muslims opposed Israel's plans to construct a more permanent bridge, so the temporary trestle has remained. And now, engineers are warning that this structure is in danger of immediate collapse. Uh, The wood is extremely dry. It started cracking, and it could also be a fire hazard. Uh, The recommendation is to replace the wooden structure with a more permanent metal bridge that would be more durable and fireproof. Unfortunately, that also means getting Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinians to agree on a project, and that seems extremely unlikely at the moment. Now, I'm going to be interested to see what happens uh, and what is happening when we get to Jerusalem. It's possible the bridge could eventually be closed to visitors. I'm not even sure if we'll be able to visit the site. Hmm. Access to the site has been denied in the past, so we'll just have to wait and see what the situation is when we're there. And and, uh, as they say, you know, the ninth beatitude is, blessed are the flexible, for they will not get bent out of shape. (laughs) Well, Charlie, uh, let me back you up just a minute. Why Jordan in this discussion? Why do they have a hand? Oh, well, from 1948 to 1967, Jordan controlled that area. Uh, In the peace treaty with Israel and Jordan, they also named Jordan as the custodian of the holy sites, including the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So the uh, Israelis have to coordinate anything done with the Jordanians. And of course, the Palestinians want to claim it as well. So uh, all three get entangled in this. 
You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, who's back in Israel for the first time since 18 months of lapsed travel, and he's giving us uh, his reflections on this current visit. Well, earlier this week, you visited Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against his church. The Romans believed the gates of hell were the entrance to the underworld, and now a shrine at one such place has been uncovered in Turkey. So first, is that what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16? Uh, well, you know, in Matthew 16, the gates of hell, when he says the gates of hell will not stand against his church, uh, it was actually a reference to death. Uh, Jesus was saying he would soon die and then he was going to rise from the dead and that even death itself would be no match for his church. Now, the place uncovered in Turkey doesn't directly relate to Caesarea Philippi. So people need to understand what was uncovered is not in Israel. It's actually found in Turkey. Uh, it's at a place called Hierapolis, and that's relatively close to the ancient city of Laodicea. And John, we've been there uh, in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that cave had a temple complex attached. It had a sacred pool and a stadium seating where people could come to watch the uh, so-called service. A priest would bring bulls into the arena and fumes coming up out of the cave would cause the animals to fall over dead, while the priests who were leading them remained alive, seemingly unharmed. Well, what archaeologists discovered is that a fissure running underground emits a large quantity of volcanic carbon dioxide. They took measurements of that carbon dioxide, and they found the gas, which is heavier than air, formed an invisible lake of gas that extended up about 16 inches from the floor of the arena. Uh, that concentration of carbon dioxide uh, was 50% at that level above the floor, but it drops to a more acceptable level above 16 inches. So inside the cave itself, by the way, the CO2 levels are between 86 and 91%. So the priests stood upright above this lake of CO2 in the arena, uh, but the nose and the mouth of the bull was closer to the ground. They'd be overcome by the gas. And of mm. course, the spectators would see strong bulls fall over dead within minutes while the priests remained alive, supposedly showing the power of the gods they served. Uh, they would even at times go into the cave and come out, but uh, they assumed what they did was held their breath while they were there. Hmm. Now, this so-called plutonium is what it's named since Pluto was the Roman god of the underworld. Well, it amazed crowds with a trick that we can now understand. Uh, the good news is when Jesus said that to uh, Peter in Matthew 16, he was smashing the ultimate power of death by dying and then rising from the dead. And, and John, that was no trick. Hmm. Well, a startup company founded by a top Israeli cardiologist claims to be able to detect and diagnose congestive heart failure before the onset of symptoms using a person's smartphone. Now, how does this latest innovation with a smartphone from Amazing Israel actually work? You know, this is a case where the sound of your own voice could someday save your life. Cardio Medical has developed a smartphone app they call HEAR-O, H-E-A-R, and then capital O, and it detects subtle changes in an individual's voice tone to diagnose congestive heart failure. The app was developed by the director of the Heart Institute at Hadassah University Hospital in Jerusalem. It uses artificial intelligence and speech signal processing algorithms to detect subtle voice changes that begin at the very earliest stages of congestive heart failure before other symptoms appear. Uh, congestive heart failure causes a dangerous buildup of fluid in the lungs. Now, as the accumulation of fluid in the lungs progresses, it causes shortness of breath and a higher pitched voice. The Hero System app creates a baseline of a patient's speech and voice 
and then monitors them daily to detect any subtle changes indicating a buildup of fluid in the lungs. To train the app, patients simply speak a few sentences. Then each day, the app prompts them to recite a couple of sentences as it listens for any changes. In a clinical trial in Israel, the app was able to detect the onset of increased fluid 10 to 12 days before the appearance of other symptoms. And because the app was both non-invasive and easy to use, 84% of patients in the study complied with it. The company is currently awaiting full regulatory approval in both the U.S. and Europe. Now, an app that can help those with heart issues monitor their physical condition before the problem reaches more serious levels? Well, that's the kind of innovation we've come to appreciate from Amazing Israel. Charlie, you are in Israel mid-June. What is typical weather uh, where you're at right now? <laughs> where I'm at right now, hot. Uh, this is a nice uh, Phoenix Death Valley kind of weather. You know, the Dead Sea is, is 1,400 feet below sea level. Uh, it's the hottest part of the year. So, uh, you know, 107 is uh, not a bad uh, daytime temperature, uh, but it's, it's relatively dry, which is nice. Mm-hmm. When we were up in Galilee, it was a little more humid up there, uh, the temperature in the upper 90s. And frankly, I'm looking forward to Jerusalem because right now the temperature uh, we're expecting, at least the, the weathermen are saying, it'll be in the mid 80s and uh, the upper 60s at night. Hmm. And that will certainly feel nice. Yeah, good sleeping weather. Well, Charlie, for somebody who is listening right now and they're saying, boy, Charlie's in Israel, you know, we'd like to move ahead with a trip that got sidelined a year or so ago. What are the requirements as of now for entering Israel? Well, right now they're pretty stringent. Uh, An individual has to uh, get a COVID test within 72 hours of traveling. When they land in Israel, they have to take another COVID test. Uh, they need to be uh, fully vaccinated uh, with the COVID uh, vaccine before they even begin. And then once they're in Israel, they also have to take a serological test uh, to show that they have the presence of the antibodies. Uh, and they, there's a health form that had to be filled out. Oh, John, it was an m- amazing thing. And then, you know, within 72 hours, you fill out that one form. Uh, the problem is when our flight got delayed, uh, we, we suddenly were beyond the 72 hours. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's worth coming. But boy, I'll tell you, right now it is a hassle. <laughs> All right. Well, we're glad you're there. You're our eyes and ears on the ground, Charlie. We'll look forward to further stories when you get back. Up next on The Land and the Book, we're in our own way headed for Jerusalem for a look at uh, secrets that have hidden the actual location of the Jerusalem Temple. Stay with us for more on The Land and the Book. The temple. No other structure in Israel better symbolized their relationship with the living God. But in AD 70, the Romans destroyed that temple. Most of us grew up believing the golden dome of the rock is built on the site of the old temple, but what if newer evidence suggests otherwise? And why should this be such a big deal anyway? Well, we'll dig into this next. Hey, thanks for connecting with us today on The Land and the Book, welcoming you to segment two of our one-hour flyover of the Middle East. I'm John Geiger. Ideas on how to reach out to your Jewish friends? Let's pause for one of those right now. So there you are talking with your Jewish friend, and you suggest that Messiah is actually presented Yeshua in the Old Testament. And your friend says, where? Well, where would you go? Dr. Michael Rydelnik is the editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Where would you go? Well, sometimes Jewish people say to me, well, Jesus tried to set up his life 
so that it fulfilled prophecies and made it look that way. I always say, well, let's look at Micah 5, 2, where it says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're little among all the tribes of Judah, from you will come forth one whose goings forth are from old, even from everlasting. So what that's saying is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You can't set up where you're going to be born. And so (laughs) that's it. But the more interesting aspect of that, it says that his goings forth, his appearances will have been from old, even from everlasting. When yes, those two, everlasting. Yeah, from those two passages, when they're used together, it always means from eternity past. So though he will be born in time in Bethlehem, he actually comes from eternity. And that's a hint of his deity. And it's it's really kind of remarkable when I think about it that there it is, it's saying Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. He can't set that up, but also he truly comes from eternity. Check out Micah chapter 5. That's Michael Rydelnik of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy here on The Land and the Book. You know, the true location of the Jewish temple, hidden in plain sight. That's a one-sentence summary of our conversation now with Dr. Christian Widener. He's a biblical scholar, researcher, engineer, has a passion for the scientific defense of the scriptures, biblical archaeology, and the study of end times prophecy. In his professional career, he is an entrepreneur, an internationally recognized expert in solid-state metals deposition, processing, and repair. Dr. Widener lives in the Black Hills of South Dakota with his wife and four children, and he's written the book, The Temple Revealed. Well, we're intrigued to talk with you today, Christian. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You uh, have written that to solve any mystery, a detective must uncover clues that others have missed. Uh, Give us an example of a significant clue that you believe others might have missed in the search for the temple's exact location. Well, one of the big things that people see whenever they look at a, a picture of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the Golden Gate, and it's this beautiful stone gate that's in the eastern wall facing the Mount of Olives and it's walled up in stone. And, you know, it's, it grabs everyone's attention. Everybody notices that it mm-hmm. is believed by Muslims, Jews, and Christians to be the Messianic gate. But this idea developed that it wasn't an old gate, that it was a new gate. And, you know, that was something that then suddenly turned people's attention away from thinking about it as a landmark of the temple. But there's a scripture in Ezekiel 44 that says, I looked to the gate of the outer sanctuary that faces east, and it was shut. And it will remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, and therefore it will be shut. And so you look at that gate and you go, wow, that's walled up in stone. And it's been walled up in stone for 500 years. And history records that it's really basically always been kept shut. And so that looked like a fulfillment of prophecy. That looks to me like God is saying, hey, you know, I'm giving you a hint where to look. And so I think it's one of those landmarks that's in front of people. They see it. but because archaeologists about 100, 150 years ago started questioning whether it really could have been, you know, from a a first, second temple period, then they just stopped seeing it. They just saw it as a later construction and ignored it. Hmm. A cynic or skeptic might ask of this entire conversation, what's the big deal here? Why should it matter if we have the exact location of the temple properly identified? How would you respond? Uh, That is a good question, and it really goes back to Deuteronomy, where God told them, in the future, I'm going to establish a place. And when I show you this place to build a house for my name and, you know, to offer sacrifices to me, don't offer sacrifices anywhere else. So in the Jewish mind, that solidified that there was a place 
And even in Ezekiel 47, God says, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the people, you know, in Israel. And so you, you go, oh, so God has said, you know, there's a special place. Uh, Jews have always recognized that. So they know they can't just go and, and build a temple like a synagogue. A synagogue, yeah, they can build anywhere. Mm-hmm. But the temple was always supposed to be in a very specific spot. And so that's the, the driver for finding the right place. Without the right place, it's not a legitimate temple. It's not God's temple like Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, speaking of the Antichrist, but he says that he will set himself up in the temple of God and declare himself to be God. And a lot of people miss that even Paul is saying it's God's temple. Mm-hmm. So in the last days, we're expecting this, this temple, and, and it seems like it must also need to be in the right place. Christian Widener is a follower of Jesus, a devoted husband and father to four kids, an engineer, researcher, and author who has uh, brought us the book, The Temple Revealed. Let me ask you, why do you believe that the temple was not placed where many of us uh, have been led to believe that it was at the site of today's Dome of the Rock? So the biggest clue for where the temple was located actually comes in the account of uh, Second Chronicles where Solomon is building the temple. And it says he built the temple on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the place provided by David on Mount Moriah. And so you go, well, what's a threshing floor? And it was this big, flat, open rock area where they would thresh grain. They would drag a sledge over it and separate the wheat from the chaff. And so you go, well, that needs to be flat. And when you look in the Dome of the Rock, which is another piece of large bedrock, in fact, it's Mm -hmm. huge, almost 50 feet long, it's not flat at all. And you can still see natural parts of the rock surface, so you know it was never flat. Hmm. And if it was never flat, then it was never a threshing floor. And if it's not the threshing floor, then how can it mark the location of the temple? But north of it, there is a flat area of bedrock underneath what's called the Dome of the Spirits. And it's cleverly disguised from view by being level with the entire platform. So Hmm. it makes it look like it's just a, a paving stone. And so that's the the hidden in plain sight, that's the other landmark of the temple that would, I mean, you could thresh grain on that surface today, but if you went to the Dome of the Rock and tried to thresh grain, you know, you can see like, oh yeah, no, that couldn't have been a threshing floor. How visible is that to tourists? How accessible is that actual site to tourists? You can walk right up to it. Um, It's in the the far northwest corner of the platform where the Dome of the Rock is sitting. And so you can stand there and look at both the Dome of the Spirits and the Dome of the Rock at the same time. You have framed this issue around prophecy writing. The issue revolves around the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, which has lain in ruins since A.D. 70 and is the next prophetic piece in Israel's restoration. Now, some would say, uh, wouldn't the Israelis be starting World War III if they began a temple reconstruction of any kind? Yeah, and I think that's generally been the case for two reasons. One, they, they did not have good relationship with most of their Muslim neighbors who, who saw the name, the Muslim name for the Temple Mount is Haram al-Sharif, which basically means forbidden. It's the forbidden zone on the temple. And so they've, you know, not wanted any non-Muslim activities on that entire area. So that was objectionable, as well as the fact that the Jewish rabbis today, all the scholarship today, predominantly believe that the Dome of the Rock would have to be demolished in order to rebuild the temple. So that's also kind of a Mm non-starter. But if it's really in this northern place, and and I've given all the evidence for it in the book, 
of why you have real true landmarks that what I call prima facie evidence. It's evidence that it's like finding the murder weapon with somebody's fingerprints on it. Mm. You know, once you've got that, the other circumstantial things of the case are not really, you know, important because you have, you know, hard evidence. So when you look at those landmarks and you see hard evidence for that, and it's in this northern location, which is free and clear and open, um, that at least removes the obstacle of needing to destroy uh, a Muslim structure in order to build the temple. And the politics recently have been changing significantly in the Middle East. If people aren't aware of the Abraham Accords, for example, where Israel is starting to make peace with Mm -hmm. UAE and Bahrain and Morocco, that is also really changing the views about um, Israel and about Israel's presence on the Temple Mount. We're talking with Christian Widener, who's written The Temple Revealed. How do your critics typically respond uh, when they come to the conclusion that you present in the book? And, and how do you answer maybe any of their attacks? The biggest thing is, is I see is people giving circumstantial evidence that to go against and try to refute the primary evidence that I'm showing for these landmarks. For example, the city of David, the the Bible very clearly says that the ark and the tabernacle were in the city of David while the temple was being built. But after that, it was brought up out of the city of David and placed in the ark on Mount Moriah. So you go, all right, you can look there. If If you go to Israel today, you can see that the Temple Mount is up above and north of the city of David. It was built on a threshing floor. Threshing floors were always outside of the city, so it, it couldn't have been there. In the south part of the Temple Mount structure, uh, they've done bedrock soundings. They've dug down mm-hmm. or drilled to find where the, where the bedrock was. And we know the southern part really dropped away as a steep slope in ancient times before the Temple Mount was built. So that also couldn't have been a threshing floor because you don't build a threshing floor in a steep slope. Yeah. So that really leaves only the central and northern portions that were kind of flat mountain areas of Mount Moriah back, you know, before God chose the threshing floor of Aruna. And there, you only have two pieces of bedrock. One's super flat, and one's not. (laughs) So, you know, which one do you think was the threshing floor? Our guest is Christian Widener, a Bible scholar and researcher who lives in the beautiful Black Hills of South Dakota with his wife and four children. Our focus today on the land of the book, The Temple Revealed. You write that support from the U.S., fueled by the Christian community, is the key to Israel establishing sufficient sovereignty over the Temple Mount in order to allow them to begin rebuilding the Temple. Two questions here. One, uh, you know, we struggle with the idea that the Israelis would even need sovereignty over the Temple Mount. It is, after all, in the center of their land. So uh, just a quick sketch on that. Why, why is that such an issue? Probably because we, we fund them, we give them, mm-hmm. you know, support. We're a critical ally in defending them, so we have a lot of influence over them. And we certainly, our government has applied a lot of negative pressure to try to control Israel's actions. Maybe if we were only doing positive help and we weren't applying negative pressure, that wouldn't be required. But I I think as Christians, we have a lot of influence over the the government, or at least we have, um, you know, traditionally. And so it was my thought that with support from the U.S., it would be easier for that to, to move forward in Israel. Some listeners might be a bit confused as to why Israelis have to tread so lightly when Jerusalem is their capital. Enlighten us. Yeah, I I don't understand that either. I mean, when you think about uh, the UN, for example, and the number of uh, sanctions and um, pronouncements or things that they've they've done against 
Israel and, and the UN, they've made these resolutions saying, you know, that they're occupying the land and, and that kind of thing. Why is the world so against the Jewish nation? It doesn't make sense to me, but we see that in the Bible that that is one of the things that as God scattered the people around that he was going to also put the nations against them. But now that we've seen them brought back into their land, also in fulfillment of prophecy, I would think God-fearing people would would want to recognize that God still has a plan for the Jewish people. He's clearly moving in their favor and would, would move to help them, not oppose them. But you often don't see that played out in the nations today. What would you like listeners to do with this information in the Temple Revealed? We've uh, got new updated information, and uh, we've reached a conclusion that the Temple may well not be where we thought it was. What should we do, Christian? Besides just a general support, I think, for, for Israel as, as a country that I, I think is good and proper to, to be favorable towards them, I, I just was hoping people would, would recognize how truly close we may be to a prophetic fulfillment like this, hmm. and to see that Israel becoming a nation in 1948 was before most of the listeners' probably lifetime. It was before my lifetime. But I consider it something in this modern era, a miracle that the Church has, has witnessed. And I think that if we do see a rebuilt temple, I would also hope people recognize the prophetic significance of that, and as a sign that we really are approaching the last days and that people are ready for the king to to come back. You know, are we doing the things that, that the master has asked us to do? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we, you know, living right? Um, are we ready for, for the return of the king? I, I, and I hope so. I hope so, too. Great conversation, stimulating, and lots to think about. Thank you, Christian, for your research and for the book. A link at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's back after this. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, sitting across from Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, who's sitting across from a stack of questions. Maybe one of them's yours. These are questions that folks have emailed us, questions about prophecy, the Middle East, Scripture, and we're always glad to entertain them. Charlie, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued with this first question from Gaylene, who says, I agree that my workplace is a mission field. I've always tried to provide a testimony through my quality of work and attitude, but I'm not good at including my beliefs in introductions. How can I do that? Can you give me some examples? Yeah, and what I'd say, Gaylene, is don't stress out over developing you know, an answer at the time of an introduction. God created us all differently. You know, there are introverts or extroverts. I think the most important thing you can do is first live out your faith, demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, show genuine love, care, and concern for people as you meet them. Eventually, they'll say to you, you know, why are you so cheerful? Or, or some other question that shows they notice something different and positive about you. And when that happens, just be prepared to share a, a short explanation that connects your attitude with your faith in God and what God's done for you. You know, something like, I guess I'm so happy because I discovered God loves me so much. He sent his son to pay for my sin and make me a new person. Again, you don't have to have anything forced or canned or, or long. You know, First Peter 3.15, uh, Peter wrote, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, a second thing, though, I'd say is if you want to become better at evangelism, there's a good book you can read. An oldie but goodie is Paul Little's How to Give Away Your Faith. 
that can help you have confidence in sharing your beliefs. Uh, if you need help in sharing the gospel, you can also get a small booklet from Crew, uh, Four Spiritual Laws. That's been used to share the gospel with hundreds of thousands, millions over the, over the years. Finally, just pray and ask God for opportunities to minister to friends and colleagues. If, if someone shares with you about a problem or an issue, you know, medical, family struggle or whatever, uh, just tell them you'll pray for them. Then be sure to pray regularly for the matter and, and then ask them how they're doing. Your concern, coupled with your prayers, could be the opening that will get them to ask you about your faith and then just be willing to share with them in an honest, open, loving way. Lori asks, when Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb the day after Jesus' death, is she witnessing the events of Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4? If she did not actually witness this, how could Matthew know to put it in writing? This seems like a big event that took place. I don't understand why the other three Gospels don't mention this at all. The other Gospels say that she arrived at the tomb, that the stone had been rolled away already. Can you help me clarify this event? Yeah, and as I harmonize the different accounts, I assume Mary didn't witness the coming of the angel or the stone being rolled away. At least the different accounts don't suggest she actually witnessed it. So, of course, your question you're asking is, how could Matthew then know about these events and include it in his gospel? It's possible Jesus shared the event uh, during his 40 days he was with the disciples, but I don't think that's necessary either. I think it's possible that Matthew heard about it from the reports that were given by the guards themselves when they reported to the religious officials. You know, the guards were there. Uh, And the fact that Matthew knew about their report and knew about the bribe that was paid to them to keep quiet, well, that suggests someone with firsthand knowledge of that event shared it with Matthew. Uh, So the guards were certainly one group who had firsthand knowledge and evidently someone who overheard what was going on later reported that event to Matthew, who then included it in his gospel. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, always intrigued with the things that intrigue you as you open Scripture. Like uh, Robin's question, were the tent of meeting and the tabernacle the same? In Second Chronicles 1 verse 4, what was the tent that David pitched that he had prepared for the ark of God? Now, we're going to have several tents here, so follow along. Uh, well, we know Moses set up a temporary tent of meeting where he went to meet with God, and that was before the tabernacle was constructed. That tent, Exodus 33 says, was constructed outside the camp some distance away. And then in, beginning in chapter 35, they start the construction of the tabernacle, and that's finally finished in Exodus 40. Now, one major difference between those two structures, the tent of meeting was outside the camp, The tabernacle, once it was set up, was in the center of the camp with the tribes camping around it. Now, since both structures were designed to be meeting places of God and Israel, the tabernacle replaced that original tent of meeting. And in fact, the tabernacle in Leviticus uh, chapter 1 was referred to as the tent of meeting. So uh, that phrase became used of the tabernacle as well. Now, the tent pitched by David in Jerusalem is a different temporary structure. It was designed to house the Ark of the Covenant which David brought into Jerusalem. That's 2 Samuel chapter 6. David's plan was to house the Ark of the Covenant in that tent until he could build the permanent temple for it. But of course, God told him the temple would be built by his son Solomon. So as a result, the Ark remained in that temporary tent until the temple was finally built. And that temporary tent built by David, well, that's the one being described there in 2 Chronicles 1.4. Well, Charlie, you know, if, if the tabernacle is a place for meeting with God, Why not just put the uh, Ark of God in the tabernacle as opposed to its own tent? Well, uh, in actual fact, they did. I mean, when the the, uh, tabernacle was finally built, it was a tent, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was finally placed. But uh, the first tent of meeting that Moses built, 
That was before there was an Ark of the Covenant. That's where Moses would go personally to meet with God on behalf of the nation. All right, Robin does have a couple of follow-up questions here. In 2 Chronicles 1, verse 13, what tent of meeting was in Gibeon? Was this the tabernacle? If not, where was the tabernacle? Yeah, I feel like one of the uh, salesmen on television. But wait, you know, we've talked about <laughs> tents. But wait, there's more. Uh, well, to understand the tent of meeting in Second Chronicles 1, uh, you need to remember what happened to Israel during the time of the judges. You know, the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh and stayed there uh, for years until the time of Eli the high priest. His sons carried the Ark of the Covenant to battle with the Philistines. It was captured. The ark eventually came back to Israel, but never made it back to the other parts of the tabernacle. In fact, uh, Jeremiah suggests that uh, in Shiloh, the tabernacle area was destroyed. The town was destroyed. The priests grabbed up the pieces of the tabernacle and scattered them. So as Israel fled from the Philistines, uh, it looks like the bronze altar and the tent were carried off to Gibeon. Uh, The table of showbread with the bread of the presence in it, ended up at Nob, just north of Jerusalem. Uh, David visited there and got the bread in 1 Samuel 21. Of course, the ark ended up at Kiriath Yaarim until it was taken by David to Jerusalem. So anyway, all that to say, in the time between the destruction of Shiloh in the days of Eli until the construction of the temple under Solomon, the different pieces of furniture were scattered, and that's why Solomon had to go to Gibeon to offer his sacrifice, because that's where the altar and the original tent structure were located. Peter's question takes us to Malachi 1, verse 3. Does it actually say that God hated Esau? A few English translations of the Bible don't use the word hate, but most do. What does the verb actually mean? Yeah, the word used there in Hebrew means hate. Now, there are times in the Bible when love and hate are used together to mean preferring one thing over another. Uh, Example, in Genesis 29, the Bible says Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But then in uh, the next verse, it says Leah was unloved, but the Hebrew word is actually the same as Malachi 1.3. Uh, in a sense, the love Jacob displayed for one wife made it appear that as if he hated the other in comparison. But now, having said that, I'm going to throw a curveball. While the word, when it's used next to love, like in Genesis or Deuteronomy, can have the idea of being unloved, at least in comparison to the other, I don't think that's what Malachi is saying in Malachi 1.3. And here's why. Though the reference to Esau in verse 2 looks back to the time of Jacob and Esau, the description in verse 3 moves from the distant past to events closer to the time of Malachi. God turned the mountains into a wasteland and left Esau's inheritance to the desert jackals, it says. And that was because of Edom's treatment of Judah. Uh, In fact, whether it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Amos or Obadiah, you look in those passages and you find God pronouncing judgment on Edom because of the way they had treated Jacob. Uh, In Malachi, uh, I see God promising, in effect, that Judah, which had spent time in exile, will experience God's love and blessing, while Esau's descendants, the Edomites, will not. God's hatred in this case is his hatred of Edom's mistreatment of his chosen people. That's why Edom was judged. I think Malachi 1.3 points to why God was judging Esau's descendants, not to a hatred of Esau personally. This last question takes us to Matthew chapter 6. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And the question is, can you tell me what Jesus is trying to say in verse 27, please? Yeah, I think there's two possible questions about this verse, and I'm not sure which one you have in mind, so let me quickly deal with both of them. First, what is Jesus saying in this section? I think he's saying you can't serve God in money. Uh, Then he says, uh, 
basically the, the goals are God versus materialism, which are opposite to one another. So uh, in our priority, he's saying we need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will come to us. It, it's not that food or drink or clothing or the future aren't important. They are. But our relationship to God is more important. Now, that leads to the second question. And I think it's probably the one you might be asking. The translation of the last part is, who among you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Or who of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his height? You know, so is Jesus talking about how long we're going to live or how tall we're going to grow? Uh, and the problem is that the Greek is just unclear enough that both can be working. Uh, the Greek literally says, who of you being anxious is able to add to his span one arm or one hour? Uh, so whether he's talking about length of time or height, what he's really saying is uh, we just need to make sure our focus is on God and his provision. Thanks, Charlie. Always appreciate your answers. And we're looking forward to your devotional. It's next here on The Land and the Book. The Blind and the Lame. During Bible times, if you were visually impaired or couldn't walk, you faced a life that could only be described as tragic. Some Old Testament insights into the blind and the lame coming up on today's devotional segment. First, here's a Holy Land experience from someone who's been there. I recently returned from a trip to Israel. But before I went on the Holy Land tour, I was reminded of a quote from Jerome, the man who translated the Bible into Latin and spent much of his life in the Holy Land. Jerome said, just as those who have seen Athens understand Greek history better, and just as those who have seen Troy understand the words of the poet Virgil, thus one will comprehend the Holy Scriptures with a clearer understanding, who has seen the land of Judah with his own eyes, and has come to know the references to the ancient towns and places and their names. Well, that was my experience. As a result of being in Israel and seeing the places of biblical significance, I know the Bible better. And through knowing the Bible better, I hope to know the Lord better as well. Thanks for joining us on The Land and the Book, where, well, for a lot of listeners, this fourth segment is really the thing they're listening for, Charlie Dyer's devotional. Charlie, where are you taking us today? Uh, we're going to Jerusalem today and uh, heading back to the time of David and then moving on to the time of Jesus. So, uh, but we're going to be walking through that sacred city. I'm looking forward to it. Charlie, that's not an overstatement, is it, by the way? The blind, the lame, they, they really seem to have a wretched time during Bible uh, times. In fact, that's exactly what I want to talk about, because it was the uh, the lowest of the low, if you will, hmm. for people and it, when, when nothing was handicapped accessible. Uh, they were incredibly limited. Well, let's uh, let me get out of the way and let you get to it. Okay. Well, every tour to Israel is different. You know, some groups are more mobile than others. Some seasons are more crowded than others. Even the weather can change from trip to trip. And all these variables impact what any given group will be able to see and do. Now, I try to pack as much into each tour as possible, but we still need to make choices on virtually every trip. We simply run out of time before we run out of sites to visit. One of the most recent challenges is determining how to visit the original city of David. I'm sure we could spend at least half a day there, walking through all the tunnels and channels the archaeologists have uncovered, assuming the group is physically fit and not claustrophobic, of course. 
These passageways include the tunnel dug by Hezekiah to divert the water from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam, as well as the drainage channel that ran under the street leading to the temple in the time of Jesus. But the tunnel I find most fascinating is sometimes called the Dry Tunnel. It extends from the Gihon Spring along the edge of the Kidron Valley. The Dry Tunnel is the oldest of those uncovered. It was dug before the time of King David. And I love it because it just might be the water shaft mentioned in 2 Samuel 5.8 that Joab secretly climbed through to break into the city and capture it. The fortress city of Jebus seemed impregnable. In fact, the inhabitants taunted David's army by shouting down at them, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away. The blind and the lame. Their insolent boast not only mocked David, it showed the low esteem in which those with physical handicaps were held. It was the height of insult to say the fortifications were so strong that even the physically disabled could defend the city. But David did conquer the city by exposing its one weakness, the rock-cut tunnel diverting water from the Gihon Spring. And it's at this point in the passage we encounter a statement that troubles us. Verse 8 seems to say the blind and the lame were also hated by David and to be excluded from his city. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Could David indeed have demonstrated such hatred for the disabled? Well, I believe the answer is no, and I say that for two reasons. First, in the passage itself, David's words are in counterpoint to the boast of the city's defenders. They claimed that even if all the defenders were blind and lame, they could keep David out of the city. In reality, they were blind to the power of God working through David. And in spite of their physical prowess, they couldn't stop David's forces almost as if they were paralyzed by his bold move. David isn't saying he hates the physically disabled. He's saying he hates these arrogant defenders whom he compares to the disabled, just as they had done in their inability to stop him. In short, he's turning their own boast back on their heads and calling them the blind and the lame. But second, I believe David's later kindness shown toward Mephibosheth shows his compassionate heart toward the disabled. Mephibosheth was the crippled son of Jonathan, David's friend, and son of King Saul. In 2 Samuel 9, David invited Mephibosheth to eat at my table in the royal palace in Jerusalem. This one who was the crippled grandson of disgraced King Saul was shown great honor and kindness by David and allowed to live in the city of Jerusalem and to dine with David himself. But before we leave the city of David, I want us to fast forward a thousand years from the time of David to the time of Jesus, the ultimate son of David, destined to rule as Israel's Messiah. We know many of the miracles done by Jesus, but it appears that only two from the Bible were actually performed inside the city of Jerusalem. Both are recorded in the Gospel of John. In John 5, Jesus healed the man born blind by having him wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. And in John 9, Jesus healed the man who had been lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. The blind 
and the lame, healed at Jerusalem's water sources. Is it coincidence, or could John be drawing a subtle parallel between Jesus and David? David could defeat the blind and the lame to make Jerusalem his capital, but Jesus could heal them. So what lessons can we carry from these two encounters with the blind and the lame of Jerusalem? May I suggest two? First, Jesus did demonstrate by his miracles that he was indeed the son of David and Israel's promised Messiah. Even the tiniest details, like healing the blind and the lame of Jerusalem, draw attention to this reality. And second, both David and Jesus extended kindness, grace, and compassion to those with physical disabilities. David did so to Mephibosheth, and Jesus to these two men. And in that sense, they both serve as excellent models for us today. Are you and your church reaching out in the same way today to demonstrate the love of God to the physically disabled? I can think of few better ways for the church to take a stand for the worth and dignity of all humans created in the image of God than to seek out tangible ways to demonstrate genuine kindness, compassion, and love to those struggling with physical, emotional, or mental disabilities. Johnny and Friends, the ministry of Johnny Erickson Tata, provides excellent resources to help equip, train, and mobilize churches to reach out and embrace people affected by disabilities. Why not make contact with them today to see what you can do to make your church more accessible and accepting for those with such needs? The blind and the lame, they were little more than object lessons to taunt David and his men. And they were the ever-present but seldom-noticed masses lining the streets and crowding around the pools of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. But David and Jesus extended kindness to them, and we should do the same today. After all, that's what God has already done for us spiritually. As John Newton so eloquently wrote in Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Boy, that hymn really does come to a fresh new light, Charlie, with that devotional, The Blind and the Lame, a look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. You want to hear it all again, the devotional and any segment you heard today, whether that was our interview, maybe the current events segment went by just a bit too quick, or those questions and answers, yeah, there's a lot there to ponder as well. It's all available at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. You know, it's always a good idea to let the management at this station know that you appreciate the land and the book. They've got lots of folks knocking on the door, lots of programs that would love to be on the air, and they have graciously shared airtime with us. And so it's always good to say thank you and let them know that you listen and why you listen, how you benefit. So thanks for doing that. Would you do us one last favor? Share us with a friend. Tell somebody else that you know has an interest in the Middle East about the land and the book. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.